doing today? Good. Well, we are at the beginning of this month looking at grace, this term that's used frequently in Scripture, a term that's in there over 150 times. And it is a vital term because it is a term that started and continues our relationship with God. And last week I gave a pretty simple four or five word definition and I asked you, if you wanted to, just text yourself so you wouldn't forget that definition. Um, I didn't expect the flood of texts that I received during my message. Uh, thank you, I appreciate that. That's why my phone is on silent, so I don't notice those texts that I get during the middle of my sermon. But if we can remember, how did we define grace last week? Undeserved, unmerited, love and favor. Undeserved, unmerited, love and favor. And I think that, I mean, there's lots of definitions of grace. I mean, there, there's lots of quotes. People sent me lots of ones that meant something to them and that they connected with. That is fantastic. But I think those four or five words just really make it simple to understand and remember. Undeserved, unmerited, love and favor. Undeserved meaning that God, when he looked upon us and brought us into his family, realized we didn't earn it. It's not a payback. Unmerited also meaning it's not something that we put effort into and God said, oh, I need to repay you with kindness and generosity. And it is definitely love. It is the prime example of love. It is Christ giving his own son on our behalf type of love, self-sacrificing love. And it is favor that God just lavishes upon us kindness and generosity and goodness. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we might do, but in spite of what we've done, in spite of what we might do, God says, I dearly love you. And that grace, that moment where God shines upon us undeserved, unmerited love and favor doesn't just, it's not just for when we get saved. It's not just a salvation matter. It's not just a word that we assign to, oh, God showed us grace and now we're his believers, his children, his sons and daughters in his kingdom. But grace goes with us every step of the way, every part of our Christian life, every part of our future eternal destiny is tied up in God's unmerited, undeserved love and favor that he shines upon us. So heaven is based on grace. Our current lives are based on grace. Our past experiences of salvation are based on grace. It's all grace. But there is a challenge that we have as human beings. Now, we have a lot of challenges as human beings, and some of us have more challenges than others. But one of the challenges is living with grace in our heart and in our actions. Because we tend to be a people that judge, we judge others harshly. We judge others with that old saying, judging a book by its cover. And we know we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but we often do. We often judge that person who's holding that sign, just need gas money. We automatically in our mind go, oh, probably lazy. Oh. <laughs> they just want drug money. 
And we automatically assign to them negative things. We see someone that we don't know sitting in our seat at church and we think to ourselves, oh, they just don't know. And, and, you know, they're new. They could just be from the other side and they wanted to switch sides and they've both been here for 30 years and you just haven't met each other yet. But we judge people harshly. And we like to say, well, we don't judge people and we certainly don't judge by outward appearances. But God knows that we have this challenge. We don't like the way someone's hair. We don't like the fact they got tattoos all over. We don't like what they're wearing. We don't like what kind of music they're listening to. We don't like their kind of car. I'll tell you, there is a difference. Driving up next to at a stop sign or a stoplight and a soccer mom in her minivan with the kids and you let your guard down and then a low rider truck beeping lots of loud rap music with dark tinted windows you probably won't make eye contact and look over to your left or right you'll just wait for that light to turn and go because we're making judgments based on appearances god has a lot to say about that in relationship to grace and two verses that come to my mind the first is in first samuel chapter 16 going all the way back to the old testament now this was a moment where god had told samuel who was the high priest who who sort of was the religious leader at the time uh, that we currently have a king called saul but saul was really a wicked king and god told samuel he's going to appoint a new king and he gives him this verse of instruction when he's about to see david in first samuel 16 verse 7 the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, Saul was this magnificent specimen of a human man, taller than most, stronger than most, attractive. And people thought, he'd be a great king. He's got everything we need. He's tall, he's handsome, he's smart-looking. He probably dresses well. He comes from a wealthy family. This is the guy. And God says, this is not the guy. It doesn't matter if he's a six-foot-four. It doesn't matter if he's attractive. It doesn't matter if he's wealthy. Those things don't matter because the Lord looks at the heart of an individual, not the outward appearance. And Jesus had a similar uh, statement in the book of John chapter 7 and he's having this this debate with the Pharisees back and forth and as he always does and at the end of his one comment with the Pharisees about a demon possessed person he says in verse 24 of chapter 7 of John stop judging by mere appearances but instead judge correctly meaning looking at the heart and so even Jesus a thousand years after the time of Samuel, had to remind people, stop looking at outward appearances and basing your relationship with them because you are missing out on the whole point of a relationship. It's not based on outward appearances. It's based on the heart. It's based on the heart that God sees, not what they wear, what skin color they are, what they adorn themselves with, what kind of haircut they have, how tall they are, how short they are, how wider they are than narrower, it doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. 
In a Christian world, those things should never enter our mind as a value judgment. And there is a story that Jesus relates that really puts this all into perspective in one complete story. And that is found in the book of Luke, chapter 7. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, Luke chapter 7, a story about grace in action. And it's one of those stories that uh, we may be familiar with, and that's okay. We should be familiar with all the stories in here. Uh, But it's a story that we remind ourselves on how Jesus treated people. And it's based on grace. It's based on undeserved, unmerited love and favor. And this is the example that Jesus lays out before us on how we're to treat others, on how we are to view that person that we see as different than ourselves, as that person that we may see as untouchable, untouchable, unspeakable. And he starts out in uh, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. And he says, uh, the story goes, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. All right, so in the middle of his teaching back into Jerusalem, John tells us a story where a Pharisee asked Jesus out for dinner over at his house. Common practice, Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house. Now the Pharisee, remember, is that religious leader that loves promoting the law loves talking about the Ten Commandments, has memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, knows it heart to heart, knows all the laws attached to all the Ten Commandments, and lives it religiously. Everything is about perfect obedience in the mind of a Pharisee. And he recognizes there's something special about Jesus. He teaches with wisdom, he amazes the crowds, the people follow him, So I don't know the heart and mind of this Pharisee, but he definitely wanted to get closer to Jesus to find out what he was all about. So Jesus goes to his home, and as custom, they have no chairs. It's just pretty much a table that's very short to the ground, and they recline at it. So they're kind of just sitting back on pillows. I cannot think of a more enjoyable meal position than you already are ready for nap time. Because you're already laying down on pillows. I don't know how they kept awake during those things, but they did. So, Jesus goes over to the Pharisee's house and reclines at the table. Just takes a normal position uh, at a small table with pillows all around him. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. In the other Gospels, there's other stories similar to this. Not the same story. This was not Mary of the Mary and Martha. That, that's a different story. This is happening in the north part of Israel, and this, is, uh, this story is happening in the north part of Israel. Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus is in the southern part. So it's not the same Mary that this is happening to. This one is unnamed. But it is a woman who lives a sinful lifestyle. What do you think that might be? And everybody probably is correct in their assumption. It's a sinful lifestyle. She probably was well known for visiting all sorts of houses at all sorts of times of day and was well known in that community for her sin. 
Now, Pueblo is getting to be a little bit larger of a community. It still has that small town feel, but it's over 100,000, 150,000 people in the county. It's, it's larger. But I imagine if you look back 30, 40, 50 years, there probably were people in town that had that kind of reputation. They were mean, they were loose, they were drug addicts, uh, they were alcoholics, and you just kind of knew them by reputation. So in your mind, think of that person, and that's the person that came over to this dinner party, completely uninvited. In fact, you would never invite this person to a dinner party because they have a bad reputation. So you're not going to let them in. But she finds out through the grapevine. Jesus is in town. The Pharisee's having a dinner. Jesus must be at the Pharisee's house, puts all the connections together, and goes there. First of all, what guts it takes for her to show her face in public in a Pharisee's house. That's like coming over to the pastor's house. It's like, oh, all of a sudden you have to be polite. All of a sudden it gets tense. All of a sudden you don't know how to act. Normally, act normally. If you're ever over at my house, feel free to take your shoes off. That's encouraged. Sit down in my favorite chair. It doesn't matter. Every chair is my favorite chair, so have a seat. But I can imagine the feeling of uncomfortable, uncomfortableness that came over everybody at that party when she walked through the doors. Everyone in that town, probably except Jesus, except he's all-knowing, knew exactly who she was. Totally out of place. Totally uncalled for. You are coming to an uninvited dinner party at a Pharisee's house with the teacher of Pharisees, Jesus. But she doesn't come empty-handed. She comes with this jar of perfume in alabaster stone, which is a soft stone that's able to be cut and, and uh, shaped and carved. And I imagine at that moment, everyone became quiet. And you could hear the pin drop. Every eye turned to her. And then every eye probably turned to the Pharisee. And then every eye turn to Jesus. What's going to happen? It's sort of like that relative that shows up for Thanksgiving who was only at Thanksgiving last year, who made a fool of themselves last year because maybe they got drunk and no one has anything to do with them anymore and they show up. What's the first words out of your mouth? How do you handle that type of tense uncomfortable situation. Well, verse 38 tells us what happens next. She stood behind him, that is Jesus, at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Everything in that verse is very foreign to us. Everything in that verse makes us cringe. Everything in that verse makes us super, super uncomfortable. Because in our day and age, if you came over to someone's house and started touching their feet, I don't care if you're crying, I don't care if you're pouring perfume, but you just come over to someone's house and you kneel down and start touching their feet, talk about uncomfortable. 
talk about just plain weird, right? Well, our culture and the culture of the Middle East, a little bit different, especially at this time. At this time, that would have been super common because one of your responsibilities as a host was not just to welcome them into your house, take their coat, put it on your bed, and let them have a seat and give them something to drink, but you washed their feet. And if you're rich, you had your servants wash them. But nonetheless, you took care of that person's feet. Why in the world would washing someone's feet be super important back then? Oh, they did not have the beautiful invention of asphalt. Nor did they have the beautiful invention of closed-toed shoes and socks. And so when they walked and traveled, it was in sandals every day of the year, and your feet got filthy dirty. Imagine, now, filthy dirty feet may not feel all that weird and incredible, but imagine spending a day out in your yard doing yard work. One of the most beautiful things that can happen when you go inside after a hard day of work is do what? You take a shower. And doesn't that just refresh you? That makes you feel great. You go out and you play sports, you, you go out and work in the yard all day, you get sweaty, you get dirty. Taking that shower just feels incredibly refreshing. That's the same thing that would happen every time that you had a friend or a stranger come into your home, you wash their feet, it just made them feel welcomed and refreshed. It also cut down on having to clean the floors because you washed the feet and it all stayed in the dirty room, dirty water taken care of. So super, super common that someone would wash someone's feet. What was a little unusual here is who was doing it. It was the woman who lived a sinful lifestyle who was not part of the household. It always was the owner of the house or their servant, never someone from the outside. And the way she did it was really weird. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears. So she was crying. She was weeping. And I've cried a handful of times in my life, handful, especially at sad movies, but I don't think I've ever cried enough to be able to wash someone's feet. I mean, that has to be a tremendous amount of tears. So she was really, really in the depths of sorrow. And on top of that, she doesn't use the typical washcloth. She doesn't use the typical foot-washing towel, whatever that might have been back then. She uses her hair, which tells me she must have had long hair of some sort. And, but talk about humiliating to her. Really low. Not only is she kneeling before Jesus, washing his feet with her tears, she's wiping her, his feet with her hair. Really unusual. Really, everyone at that moment had to have just this open, gasping look on their face. And then she takes the perfume and pours it on his feet. Over-the-top cleanliness and beautification. The next verse tells us a little bit more. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, kind of under his breath, 
if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Wow. The Pharisee doesn't attack the woman. The Pharisee attacks Jesus. The Pharisee now in his mind is already made up. This guy is not from God. This guy's no prophet. This guy doesn't know the mind of God. This guy doesn't know anything. Because if he claims to be the one sent by God, the Messiah, the Christ, then he would know she's a sinner. <laughs> I look at that and I go, duh, everyone in the room's a sinner. I mean, wh where's this coming from? The Pharisee's a sinner. Everyone in that room is saying, Jesus is a sinner. Well, we know what he means. She's really a sinner. I mean, she is the scum of the earth. She, whatever her lifestyle is, it's known throughout the entire town. She's bad news. Doesn't attack her. In a slight way, maybe does, but goes after Jesus. How dare this man from God have anything to do with such a sinner as this? He must not be God. Must not be a Messiah. Must not be a prophet. Must not know anything of God. Now he's saying this to himself under his breath, but well enough that everyone else hears it. And Jesus responds in verse 40. Jesus answers him, even though it's not a question, even though it's not a statement for everybody, Jesus addresses it and says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. So now we know who the Pharisee is. Simon, I have something to tell you. Remember the scenario. A dinner party is happening. Everyone is eating, having a great time. All of a sudden, the doors open. The woman walks in, who is a known sinner in the community, starts to cry at Jesus' feet, wipes his feet with her hair, pours perfume on her, on his feet, and the Pharisee, Simon, mumbles under his breath, I can't believe this is happening. He's not really a prophet. But Jesus answers. And Jesus poses a question to him. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Okay, so pretty much uh, like a year's wage versus a month's wage. Okay, so in your mind calculate a year's wage versus a month's wage. Okay, so we have two people who owed the bank a lot of money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? All right, well, you know the rest of the story. I'll just read it. Simon replied, I suppose the one, uh, one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. So two people, both had debts they couldn't pay. They were both in the same spot. They couldn't pay the money back. One was forgiven a year's salary. One was forgiven a month's salary, what they owed. Who would be more grateful? Simon's right. The one who was forgiven more certainly felt a bigger relief off of their shoulder. And so Jesus is putting this connection together. Simon doesn't get it. So Jesus explains it in verse 44. He then turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, 
but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, yet she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So Jesus turns this whole scenario around to focus on Simon at the moment. He said, Simon, I was a guest in your home. And custom is that when a guest comes into your home, an invited guest sitting at your table for dinner, custom is you take care of simple cultural basic needs. And in this culture, one of the basic needs is you take care and wash my feet. You didn't do that. And she went overboard and did it. And you could pour oil on my head, which I know is another strange custom to us. We would think the person's crazy. Why are you pouring oil on my head? But it was a sign of blessing and thankfulness as this person was here with you. Glad we don't do that today. But they did. And Jesus says, this lady didn't do it. You didn't do it. But she poured this expensive perfume, which probably cost close to a year's wage, on my feet. You didn't give me one kiss when I came in, which again was a very cultural thing. Instead of a, a, a fist pump or, or a, a quick hug, it was greeting each other with a kiss when you came into the room, into the house. Simon didn't do that for Jesus, but this woman humiliated, humbled herself, kissing Jesus' feet. I, I cannot imagine more of a sign of servitude and honoring another person than what this woman did. And she didn't do it because she had worth or value. She did it because she knew Jesus had worth and value. And that if she was going to be right with God, he was the only one that could make this right. And in her world, the only way she could express her need and her dependence and her humility was to do this act of kindness. She wasn't made to do it. She did it on her own fruition, her own effort, her own decision. I need to seek the Savior. What she was expecting, I have no idea. All she knew is this man is a prophet. I know where he's at. And all I know how to do is humble myself, not just in front of Jesus one-on-one, -on -one, but the entire dinner crowd. In fact, everyone who reads this story knows what this woman did. Everyone. You know what she did. That's better than posting a picture on Instagram or Facebook. Everyone knows. And Jesus responded with the utmost kindness and generosity. He didn't yell at her. He didn't tell her, Simon the Pharisee is right, you need to get out of here. How inappropriate this is to do, to interrupt a dinner party, let alone to interrupt it the way you've done it. No. Jesus makes this a teaching moment for Simon. You didn't do any of this. You should have, but you didn't. And makes it a moment to teach us. And look at how Jesus receives someone who is a sinner. 
Wow. It's a lot different than sometimes we receive. People who are much different than us. And a teaching moment especially for her. Because she would not have done this without that full knowledge of the guilt that had overwhelmed her. It drove her to, I have to put myself out there to Jesus. And then Jesus responds with forgiveness. Did she ask for forgiveness? Did she say, oh, can you please forgive my sins? As far as the story is concerned, no. Jesus knows her heart. Jesus sees through all this sin, all this smoke and mirror, all the cultural issues, sees through all of that and says, you know what you need more than anything else is not to wash my feet, not to cry tears of sorrow. What you don't need, none of that. What you need is to be made right, to be made whole, to be forgiven. If Jesus had reacted like many people react, like the Pharisee reacts, he says, arm's length, you need to get out of here. You're not worthy. You're different. You're a sinner. Arm's length. Ignore. Walk on the other side of the road. She would never have received what she needs the most. Not acceptance for her lifestyle. No, Jesus is not accepting her lifestyle. Jesus is changing her lifestyle. Forgiving it. Addressing it. Making it new. Removing it from her life and giving her a new lifestyle. One that she can walk in with forgiveness and acceptance for what God has done in her life. The way that people react to that Verse 49, Jesus forgives the sins. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Only God forgives sins. That's the answer. That's their answer. Only God forgives sins. And Jesus answers that pretty plainly by saying, your sins are forgiven. Everyone knew the unspokenness that was happening here. Jesus is declaring himself to be God. No one doubted that. No one was confused after that moment. No one no one doubted who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be the Messiah. The one who can forgive sins. How different the story would have been had Jesus reacted like the Pharisee the moment that woman walked into the house. The story would be completely different. The woman would be in her sins. The woman would be unchanged by God's grace. But God doesn't look at the outward appearance. I don't want us to run away with the idea or walk away with the idea that Jesus doesn't care about the sin. Jesus does care about the sin. He addresses it and forgives it. But Jesus doesn't get hung up on the fact that, oh, this is a really bad sinner. Not just the general, oh, yes, pastor, we're all sinners. Because, you know, I mean, if we're all going to just use the blanket title of sinner, we'll all say, yes, I've sinned, I'm a sinner. But when you start to get to the specifics of, well, what sins are we talking about when you say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner? Are we talking about adultery, pornography, things like that? Are we talking about abuse? Are we talking about hatred and anger in our hearts? Are we talking about envy and lust? I mean, and when we start to get specific, then we want to put our hands down and say, no, I, I don't want the specific title of sinner, but just generally say 
we have problems with sin. Everyone knew this woman sinned. There was no doubt what she did. And Jesus forgave her. How relieved do you think she was? You think she was the one with the year's debt or the month's debt? She probably was the one with the year's debt. She probably had a year's worth of debt or multiple years worth of debt that when her sins were forgiven, the weight fell off of her shoulders and she took this sigh of relief. <sighs> my God has received me because my God has made me new. She never would have had that chance if God judged based on outward appearances. Because if God judged on outside appearances, he would have rejected her the moment she walked through the door. But God doesn't look at the outward appearances. God doesn't look at the sin in general. He knows we sin. He knows we struggle with this and that. He addresses it by forgiving it. How refreshing, how freeing that is. Now Jesus is giving us this story and these events not so we can forgive others like he does. We can't. But I think it's a great illustration for us as we move forward in our Christian life and we talk specifically about grace, undeserved, unmerited love and favor, that that's how we're supposed to treat others. Not based on how they look, but based on how does God see them. God sees them like he sees us, a sinner that needs grace, a sinner that needs compassion, a sinner that needs love, a sinner that needs forgiveness. We're going to watch a very short video about this idea of judging a book by its cover. Now, it's in the context of how do we invite someone to church, okay? So that's the general context, but there's a twist in this. Let's watch the video. The old saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. And it's true. Don't look at that person who ends up next to you and say, that person is way too different from me. I could not invite him to my church. I can't have my friends see me bringing this guy in. We need to see others as Christ sees them, with a holy compassion for the lost. You know what? We all need God, no matter what the person looks like, or how different they are from you. As Christians, we are responsible to reach out to those around us. Their eternity depends on it. We need to stop worrying about the opinions of others. We need to open our eyes. New opportunities are put in front of us every single day to come out of our comfort zone, open our mouths, and speak these simple words. Hey man, if you're not doing anything this weekend, uh, check this out, we're doing something cool at our church. Fun in a fun way, I know. How many have got tricked by that for a second? Uh, a couple folks, okay. Uh, if you were here about three years ago, we showed that same video, so it should not have been a trick to those who were here that day. But it's a beautiful life lesson on how quick we are to assume who everybody is by their outward appearances. I am thankful God never looks at you and says, oh, ugh. Ugh, ugh, arm's length. 
But he says to each and every one of you, come, come. And our response to that is to be as welcoming as Jesus is, as gracious as he is, seeing others for how God sees them. A sinner who has a broken heart, who struggles with this and that. If we can live like that, I guarantee you we can make a difference in our homes and in our neighborhoods. We can make a difference in this city for the good. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for not just a story or an example of Jesus showing grace to someone who is undeserving, unmerited, but Father, that you have shown us grace. Help us, Lord, to be consumed with a passion to be gracious to others. Not to judge them on appearances, not to judge them on how tall or short they are, not to judge them on what kind of car they live, they drive or what kind of neighborhood they live in, but Father, help us to love one another as Christ has demonstrated a love filled with grace and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.